Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Athletic Perspective Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jorgensen. In this episode, I'm introducing you to a colleague of mine, Stephanie Burek Iggers. Now, Steph is a PhD student with me at the University of Toronto in Exercise Science. She is also going to join me as a co-host on the podcast going forward. She brings a wealth of knowledge, experience, and interesting perspectives on some of the great topics that we'll be covering. I'm beyond excited to have her join the team. So today, we're going to talk all about Steph, including her athletic, professional, and research background. She's done some incredible work in the development of sport and health programs within marginalized communities all over Canada and the world. Her current research focuses on building exercise programs for the treatment of rare and chronic disease. So a big welcome to Steph, and let's get started. recording we're live i think it's also recording when i'm not talking because we are suitably in an athletic center so it's picking up the voices of our athletes in the hallway oh yeah <laughs> so welcome steph and uh, thanks for coming on today do you want to start by by telling the listener a little bit about who you are and, and your background yeah okay i am I'm at U of T right now studying with you, Mike, in exercise science. And what brought me here were a lot of things, but mostly sport. So I was a varsity athlete, a provincial athlete, all in the world of rugby. And through that took me into uh, working for an international humanitarian organization called Right to Play, where I used worked with the organization Use Sport for an agent for positive change around the world, with some of the more mar- marginalized communities in the world. And doing so has led me to, to more studying, to more research, and cool. to a PhD program now in extra science. Great. So a couple of weeks ago, when I started in my program, I, I sent a message out uh, just saying, hey, here's who I am. This is a podcast I'm interested in doing. If anybody wants to come on and chat about the research or, or wants to get involved and you reached out to me and said this was something that, that you were interested in. So, so I guess what piqued your interest in the Athletic Perspective podcast? And when I reached out, what was it? Was it pity? Was it interest? (laughs) Mostly pity. No, I... (laughs) The the podcast in general, I was never a person who, when they first came out, didn't really engage in them at all. Didn't really see myself as somebody who listened to podcasts. And uh, as soon as I got introduced to a few that, a few that really piqued my interest they they changed my whole opinion of podcasts and i mean i hadn't even given them a shot before and as soon as i heard one basically i was sold it's they've changed the landscape of how people learn how people share ideas absolutely and and yeah and so in this case i mean i'm also a huge proponent of exposing researchers athletes just you know anybody to ideas that they've never known before or ideas that they might not have access to because they either don't have um, access to the scientific literature out there or right. interpreting it can also be complicated even for the, the, the most um, trained expert. So by your, you, you started by 
creating this podcast that transfers all that knowledge into something that an athlete can use, an everyday person can use, and that's I'm all about that. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah. When we talked initially, you'd said you wanted to get involved in the podcast. So what do you what do you see your role being as 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 we go forward with the podcast and, and your involvement with it? I think a big thing, I mean again, I guess this goes with what my interest was in reaching out was that your research is in sports psychology yep. and my research is in extra science. I mean, uh, physical science um, or the science, I like guess. Biophysical. Yeah, bi- biophysical. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's, and you can't have one without the other in exercise or in sport. Mm-hmm. They both not only complement each other, but just don't exist. They're not mutually exclusive at all. You have one with, you cannot have one without the other. So to research one without the other seems almost preposterous so yeah uh you need to consider both of them all the time in research and life as an individual as a athlete as a as a scientist so to bring those two together i think uh hopefully it can help share even uh, bigger ideas more ideas and we can learn from each other too yeah absolutely um yeah and then just i guess also just being a catalyst for listeners to push our limits, push our potential, and try and reach those outer limits of our potential through new information. Yeah, and you know, I think that that resonates a lot with me as well. Um, as an academic, that was my big draw to the sports psychology side was human performance, and and like you said, the limits of human performance, human potential. And I like I'm I was really excited when when you reached out, and I, I joke about the pity thing just because you're the only person who emailed me back, but. It, you're, you're right in the fact that we both come at similar issues from two very different perspectives. Both perspectives can really round out um, the type of information, the quality of information that, that we can provide to the listeners. Uh, and that's what it's all about. That's you know why I started this podcast. So tell us a little bit, you know, you're, you're a PhD student, your mom, you're an athlete. <laughs> Uh, at the moment, I mean, those those two things really take up a lot of time. I can imagine. Uh, yeah, chasing a toddler and, and chasing science or trying to help chasing build science. science. <laughs> uh, but I guess, yeah, when I'm not doing those things, it's engaging in sport, engaging in exercise, engaging in the community. So like I mentioned really briefly, I, I had um, several years where I was working in social development or working towards positive social change. So I try to continue to be involved in that type of work uh, and then playing sports of all kinds skiing snowboarding tennis attempting to run long well what I consider very long distances and just moving being in trees which is really hard when you're based out of Toronto yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so I guess you've kind of identified a couple areas uh, your athletic background professional background some of your research stuff I want you to Give the listeners just a snapshot of each of those uh, and maybe some experiences within each of those that led you to where you are now. Okay, okay. Uh, in terms of an athlete, uh, mostly mostly rugby. Rugby kind of took over my world. And and for, for the record, uh, anybody who's listening, I do promise I will get non-rugby <laughs> guests on the podcast eventually. That will happen at some point. <laughs> Uh, so, well, while stuck listening to another rugby player, I'll keep it very short <laughs> in terms of my rugby experience, but uh, played varsity at McMaster and then for Toronto Scottish club team and for the Ontario provincial team. 
as an athlete and that or that time as an athlete led me into my work with right to play and from there experiencing um, working with the most marginalized communities in in Canada in northern Canada as well as in different areas of the world yeah so um, sorry sorry to cut you off so yeah. right to play just give give a quick kind of one one sentence or so summary like what is right to play right to play is a not-for-profit Okay. Their headquarters is based in Toronto, okay. and they run programming in 21 countries, or last I checked, 21 countries, so maybe fact <laughs> check that one, around the world. And in those countries, or in those areas that they work, they partner up with community members or community leaders to build programs that work towards the goals of those communities through sport and play. Okay. So... Your athletic background sort of led you to be involved with that. Yeah, and so got involved with Right to Play and being working with the communities that I did, I got exposed to the gaps that exist in terms of education, in terms of healthcare that many of these communities face. A big one that resonated with me was were the health gaps. And so I started working more and more towards building health focused programs, but I didn't necessarily have the tools to do that because I wasn't trained in the sciences. Right. So that's when I left the organization to go back to school and get trained in the sciences and my master's in biomedical engineering and now my PhD in, in exercise science. Great. Yeah. Where did you do your master's degree? At Ryerson University. At Ryerson. Yeah. And then you also did a degree at Trent. I did. <laughs> So I've been all over Ontario. Uh, the way it worked was I, I, did, I went to Trent to chain or add on to my Bachelor's of Arts degree, my, my original undergraduate, okay. into a science degree. Okay, so originally at McMaster University, yep. transitioned to Trent University to extend that degree, mm -hmm. and then went work for a bit. So I went to McMaster and studied there, uh, did my undergraduate, okay. and then worked for Right to Play. Oh, okay. And then after being exposed to the healthcare gaps that I was, that I saw, and that, that encouraged me to pursue more of a health-focused profession, I went back to school to Trent and Trent University. Trent University to get my bachelor's in biochemistry. Then did my master's at Ryerson in biomedical engineering, and then now my PhD at University of Toronto in exercise science. Perfect. Now you're here. And now I'm here. Yeah. Now I'd like us to get into some specifics. Yeah. Specifically, your your athletic background. We'll we'll start with that. Um, so why so why rugby? Why just start playing rugby? Well, it was during a time. I mean, rugby might not be the most popular sport in Canada specifically right now, but I mean it's the World Cup. That's true. <laughs> uh, I mean, it is at the time. It was a sport that when I first started, I'd never actually seen a game. Okay. So I was playing other sports at high school, and I'm pretty sure for the listeners, I'm above average for a female in height. I'm 5'10", so which I mean isn't crazy, isn't a very like hugely tall, but taller than average. And so I think they were just looking for a tall player that had some athletic skill. Or some minor athletic skill, or maybe just a tall player. Maybe that's all I was, just a tall human being. And so I was recruited onto the rugby team and convinced to come out to the first practice. Had never seen a game in my entire life and just kind of did what I was told. And uh, it worked out pretty well. <laughs> and my high school coach at the time took, myself, took me and one other player to the Toronto Scottish 
practice. Toronto Scottish is a club in Toronto. And they took me to a practice at one, one Tuesday evening. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I was like, sure, the coaches asked me to go, I'll go. So we went and arrived. And I didn't know at the time that the Toronto Scottish, during this time, about 80% of the team was on the, on the provincial team and the other 20% on the Canadian team. I could have those stats wrong. But basically, the entire team was either on the provincial team or the or the national team. So you're surrounded by some pretty pretty good players. The best players in the country, yeah. or most of the best players in the country, arguably. And I was a 15 year old high school student that had never seen a game before. So and only several practices under my belt at this point. So I got there. We they threw me into the practice. I was scared for my life. <laughs> the strongest, most powerful women, most skilled women you've ever seen either trying to tackle me or asking me to tackle them or I mean all, all every drill you can imagine and I came out with the whole thing being a blur and thankful that I was alive and I didn't go back to the club for a few years and just played high school. So what, what position did you play? Uh, in high school I was playing eight and lock. So do you want to just give a quick yeah. Spiel on, on what those positions are. Uh, the lock position is you engage in scrum. So you're engaging in a, a restart of, of play. Yeah. yeah. And a, a very heavily contact restart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so a lot of driving, a lot of pushing in, in that, uh, in the scrum. And then as, and then also when you have lineouts, which is when the ball goes out of bounds, often locks because of the tallest will be thrown in the air to receive a ball being thrown in from from out of bounds. Right. Uh, and then as eight, you're making a lot of decisions of where the ball's going after that restart. Right. So once the ball comes out, it goes to the eight. It goes to the eight, mm -hmm. and then the decision is made. Exactly. Great. So yeah, so I so I didn't play with, with the Scottish for a few years out of fear. And then when I went to McMaster, went to the tried out for the varsity team, somehow somehow made it on the team and realized very quickly that the caliber was much higher than high school and that I was going to need to train during the summer if I wanted to go anywhere with, with the varsity team. So dug out the, the phone number from the Scottish and from there uh, joined, joined them again. And this time it was a little less scary, still scary, but a little less scary. And then played with, played, continued playing with them uh, because of so many players being on the national team, the provincial team, I was able to learn very quickly from a lot of them and was given incredible coaching. And then that brought me to the provincial team as well. Nice. Yeah. 30 years from now, when you're looking back, reminiscing on your, your days as a rugby player gone by, what do you think is, is the moment that, that'll always sort of stick out for you? Okay, can I have two moments? Sure. <laughs> I'll make them short. Moment one was my first game playing with Scottish women's first team. It was... It was like nothing I experienced before because it was playing with a team that was so connected beyond words. Like it was so cohesive and beautiful and frightening because the speed of it was nothing I'd ever experienced. And in that moment, I knew I was surrounded by the best of the best and that if I did everything I could to stay on that field with them, that I'd learn something. And that took me to maybe a better player than I ever would have because of, because of those women. And I mean, not, not only as a player, but this was a team filled with doctors, lawyers, like these were women excelling on and off the field. So role models in every aspect you can imagine. Uh, but kind of the more 
funny, I don't know, entertaining one was a strange, strange memory to be a favorite one, but it was when I tore a ligament in my knee and I collapsed on the field after trying to get up on it. And then several players came by, came over, the, the physiotherapist came on the field, etc. as you usually do when, with, a, with an injury. And it was, I don't even feel comfortable telling the story now because it almost sounds like it's from a corny movie, but... I was trying to hold myself up with this busted knee and then someone came behind me and she put her knees up so I could lean on my knee, on her on her knees on the ground at like kind of like the back of a chair and then she said just lean on me lean on me and then the four or five other girls around there burst out into the rendition of the song lean on me and it was very like remember the titans type corny disney moment <laughs> but I mean that's the kind of stuff that happens on the pitch like it's it was amazing. It was amazing. And it was, that was a team that was sport. That was kind of the magic and power of sport in that moment. And I somehow turned the worst, like a terrible injury into one of my favorite memories of rugby. Guys. Something really positive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Beyond rugby, you play a few other sports. So do you want to just talk about that? Uh, sure. I guess my, my winter one is snowboarding, skiing. Cool. And spent a lot of time on, in the snow and mountains out west. Uh, teaching as well, instructing as well, and mostly snowboarding. I was forced into being a ski instructor while out west, and because they were short on them, and they knew I had a pair of skis, they didn't know I was terrible that I had a pair of skis. So they they promised that they would only make me teach for a, a week or two if if I let them um, train me and certify me as a ski instructor, and as a result. They ended up putting me with the kids, which is great because you don't want to be put with adults and they find out you're a giant fraud. So they put me with the kids. and But unfortunately, the kids they put me with were like 12 or 13 years old and the most experienced youth on the mountain. So I had to spend a solid week with those those exceptional skiers pretending I knew what I was doing. Well, around that age too. Kids, they know. Kids are fearless. <laughs> <laughs> They're so fearless, and they would ask me every day to take them into the glades, so into the tre- like depths of the trees, uh, filled with powder, take them off cliffs, take them into <laughs> the park. I would just pretend that I'd be the safety officer on top of on top of a giant kicker, a huge a huge jump, just to avoid actually jumping over it myself on skis. On the skis. And but you, you could on a snowboard. Oh God, I'd eat it up on a snowboard. <laughs> and then now I have this dream, this dream group of, of students that I would die for on a snowboard. And instead I'm on skis and I have to pretend I can keep myself standing. So, and then they, they would beg me to take them down race, the race course. And I tell them every day that it was closed until one day they were advertising that it was open. So they forced me to go down and I survived. I didn't fall, which was key, but I also came in dead last. And then they started ragging on me and telling me that I had to stop letting them win. And I, I tried my hardest <laughs> and came in very last. So I came out of that alive, which was okay. But, uh, but yeah, so I can ski, choose to snowboard for the sake of my ego, maybe. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned this a little bit earlier, that your time as, as a varsity athlete, or, or just as an athlete in general, um, had a really big impact on your future career and sort of academic interests and how it led you to be involved with, with Right to Play. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit, on sort of how that came about? Yeah, I was on the team at McMaster 
and one of my teammates, Sarah McDougall, was also, I mean, on the team. And she, at the time, a family member of hers worked for Right to Play. I'd never heard of the organization before. And she shared with me what, what it was all about. And she said she wanted to bring it to McMaster. Would I want to support it? So along with her and a few other people, um, was the we created the first chapter, Right to Play chapter at McMaster. And it didn't look like much that year or the years to follow, really. I think it's a lot bigger now, and they, they do some great fundraising. But at that time, it was maybe getting one speaker to visit the school to talk about the organization. And when I learned about the organization, it was almost immediate that I wanted to, I wanted to work with them. And using sport for positive change, and also because at the time, it was one of the few organizations that was based on a really sustainable model. So it wasn't about going to a community and just giving them something or building something or placing, projecting whatever our values are on a community, but really connecting with the people in the community and saying, what are the goals here? Can what we offer help reach any of those goals? And, and it was and found, and the foundation of it, when, when the uh, organization does partner with the community, it's all about training community members to deliver whatever programming, uh, sport-based, play-based programming that is most appropriate there. And so I was just, the concept, the approach, everything, I was in love with. And so I worked towards um, getting a position there. And a few years later, I was working for Right to Play. Was that what your role was? It was one to, to train individuals or more program development? Or, or is it just kind of all, all the same thing? Yeah, I well, uh, my role changed throughout my time at Right to Play. And so I had different positions uh, throughout the organization while I was there. But it's in in the one of the first roles I had it was direct training in the community so I would fly into mostly I was working with remote first nations in uh, remote in northern Ontario so I'd fly into a community that would take you get an uh, an airplane from Toronto to Thunder Bay Thunder Bay to then hop through three or four communities until you finally land in your community so you're looking at a good two days of travel often the plane tickets can cost more than even going to in on international flights traveling even to different continents like Africa let's say right. somewhere uh, if you want if you're going to Ghana let's say it would be less expensive sometimes than flying up remote north so you can get a an idea of how how challenging it is for either to reach the community but more so for community members to actually reach other supports right and so a big part of that was traveling to the community to develop an understanding and develop relationships and and train community members to deliver the programming that they uh, had identified that they want. And so was it always sport-based or? Yeah, it's, mm. it would be a little bit of, depends on the community. Okay. Some communities would say, we, we just want straight sport programming. Like that's what our community needs. That's what our youth need. That's what our children need. That's maybe what the adults need and uh, work towards that. Other communities could be more specific like diabetes prevention programs. Uh, or girl, uh, female empowerment programs. So it's a lot of the programming that's offered has been shaped and created as a result of communities saying, these are the type of uh, programs that we need. And so whatever the goal is might be different, but the approach is usually the same. And it's, it's education through sport and through play. Mm -hmm. And developing, developing that collaboratively yeah. with the communities. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so there's a constant back and forth of, 
we've tried making this program with you and building it with you, tried out for a year or a couple months, and then there's a huge process in finding out how it's working, if it's working, what works, what doesn't work, what needs to be changed, and then all of that's integrated back into it and then recreated to try and have a better version of it for the next community or for the next year. So what sort of barriers beyond just you know geographical location did you find was, was really common? The barriers are so enormous. The geographic barrier leads to so many other ones. So right. for instance, you could have a, in some communities, there's only, um, there's a school in every community, but the grade in which the school goes up to changes depending on the community. So you might only go up to grade eight. And then after grade eight, you have to, if you want to go to high school, you have to leave your community. And this is a community you've lived in your whole life, maybe a, a 10 hour drive north of Thunder Bay, let's say. So really far north. And if you want to go to high school, you're going to have to leave your family, your whole network, everything you've ever known, your culture, and go down to a city that you don't know that likely has systemic barriers and challenges like violence, all sorts of just, and also uh, approaches to education or, or methodologies of education that might be different too. So just being that far away distances you from, from so much that we kind of take for granted in the South. Uh, and then also you look at the health barriers is always a health a health center in a community, but who's in that health center can vary. So you might have a nurse, you might have a traveling nurse, you might have a doctor or dentist visit once or twice a year. I can't speak to every community uh, generally at all or, or really specifically because it changes so much. So regardless of the details, it's not enough. Right. Is there a particular story or experience that, that you'd like to touch on or share from your time working with Right to Play? The experience that, that shifted a lot for me was I was working specifically with one community called Pickmobert First Nation, which is an incredible community. And I was there to, to work with um, one of the community representatives. So just uh, geographically, oh. where, where is that roughly? Uh, it's several hours north of Thunder Bay. Okay. And can if you know Toronto, you're looking at maybe it's 18, I want to say 18 hours northwest of Toronto, something like that. So uh, it's actually one of the one of the communities that's working with that's closer to the south than than a lot of other communities that exist. There's some, you know, that are really far north. And but but yeah, so Pickmore was working there and the community, amazing community, amazing people and I was there to to work with uh, one of the community members to develop youth sport and play programming. They were using it to develop life skills, education, employment opportunities, um, things like that. Right. And so while I was there, the one thing as, as somebody, as an athlete and somebody who's training, every morning I'd be up early or after our time together I'd be training or, you know, squeezing it in wherever I could. And a lot of time the community members that I was working with or the, the kids that I'd been working with would see me and come out or kind of follow or just shadow and start asking about like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? So would this be you at, at a local gym or like, Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This would be just straight up outside. Okay. Uh, so either running outside, trying not to get lost in like the deep bush of, of, right. the, of the North and, uh, or just kind of training in front of the space that I was staying in just outside using stairs, using rocks, whatever, yeah, whatever, whatever was around. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, so you're kind of open for everyone to see you and the, the kids would come by and ask about it. Or I was at times asking somebody like, is it okay if I run through these trails or is this road, you know, safe or things like that? Or would you mind if I did that? And so by asking people like, why are you doing that? Um, what does it do for you? Is that something for health? Is it for sport? What happens if I were to do it? Can I do it? Can I join you? A lot of, a lot of interest from just these small conversations that I was having. And so then uh, at first told a few of them like, yeah, sure, I'll be here at this time and we'll take off for a run and ended up having this huge crowd with me. And then children coming up on their bicycles, parents coming up with strollers, just everything you can imagine, just kind of like a whole section of the community just all running together and ended up showing me where their old, the old res was as opposed to the existing one. And it was, it was amazing. And the, the fact that not only are, is there a, a gap in the healthcare that's available to all these community members and knowledge that's available to all the community members, but there's also this huge thirst and excitement to engage in, in exercise and sport. And, and I wanted to help fuel that and help support that. And I didn't really have the tools at the time to support it in a, in a meaningful way. And so I ended up leaving the organization to then study in the sciences and, and be able to have those tools to support communities and marginalized populations in that way. Take me through then how your experience with Right to Play and your time working with them translates now to your academic research interests, what you did with, with your master's degree and what you're doing now in your PhD. My master's changed quite a bit. The, the focus of research from my master's to here and in, in, in a wonderful way. I, was, I, I thought that at the time doing it in biomedical engineering, the idea was building technology or developing technology that exists or building ones that doesn't, that don't exist to serve marginalized populations or rural areas. And so I was working in microfluidics, which is a field that uses, um, if you've, the easiest example to draw on with microfluidics is a pregnancy test. So it's a piece of paper and the way that it's, way that it is put together, that paper and what's in that paper allows you to put a small human sample on one end and a result on the other end by the reaction that's happening in that piece of paper. And so that's microfluidics, fluid on a micro level. And it can be anything from paper to then much more complex to small chips that are developed in clean rooms where you develop microchips for your computer. And it has tiny channels that are the width of a hair. And so you can look at how something similar to blood flow at the exact same dimensions as it happens in our smallest vessels on our body. And so there's a huge range of research that comes out of that, but it also allows for tiny technology and very transferable technology to small, to rural areas or to areas that don't have a lot of, that don't have a lot of resources because you don't need a lot when it's extra small. Right. So that brought me there to help develop this technology or create technology for, for diseases like let's say HPV testing or um, HIV testing or etc. I mean, it's used for all sorts of things. And in that, I kept trying to bring in exercise science and sport and, and exercise physiology. And I came across this one article. It was published in 2017 in Nature. And the basis of this paper was that they had, they looked at the response of, okay, so when you have cancer, if you have cancer, you have a chance of having circulating tumor cells. So when one cell breaks off the tumor and can travel through your body, through your bloodstream, let's say, 
those cells can then plant themselves somewhere else in your body, you can have a secondary tumor. So of course we want to avoid that happening. And in this study, they showed that those circulating tumor cells, by using these microchips, they showed what their, their response to exercise stress. And it showed that there was a 90% decrease in viability. So 90% died. When exposed to exercise, exercise stress. stress. The sheer stress that comes from uh, what they simulated was exercise stress on these chips. So they took these cells, put them on a chip, and induced some form of exercise or what they... So they put these cells into a chip and flowed them through a tiny channel. Okay. And then they... Then they um, then they put exercise induced stress on these cells mechanically. They would they would squish the the chip in a way that would replicate exercise induced stress in our body. And those cells that experience that stress, the viability of them, the their ability to stay alive, decreased by ninety percent. And this led me to speaking with my current supervisor, Dr. Daniel Santamina who works in exercise oncology, so exercise science for cancer survivors. So those that are before treatment or after treatment for their cancer engage in exercise to um, help their recovery process. That's one example. Uh, but his lab does a, a huge range of things. But this is how we got connected. And through this, started discussing around um, the research in exercise for, for health, exercise for chronic disease, and and now that's what has me here, or what has led me here. Right. And so you, you read this article, and it, it piqued your interest. And some of the work that you had been doing led to that, gave you sort of that background knowledge on what was going on in this article in this area. Mm -hmm. You reached out to your current supervisor, who does research in this area, and said what? I said that I want to do this, something similar to this for your lab. Uh, so I want to complement everything that you're doing, uh, but with, with this type of technology. Right, um, so this cell-induced or stress-induced uh, microtechnology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. And so the tricky thing with, with research is you have to be in certain places at the right time. And so in terms of this, this technology, um, complementing what they're doing right now might not be the perfect time at the moment. What we did come to was that with my experience in sport programming and, um, and community development, sport and exercise development, as well as in biomedical engineering and biochemistry and physiology, was that developing sport programs or exercise programs as treatment for chronic disease is it's a really good time for that. And so that's that's complementary to to that. Yeah, yeah. So the connection is using exercise to solve people's problems. Mm -hmm. That's the crux of your professional background. Obviously, as an athlete, you have an, an interest in, in exercise and sport that way. And now, with your previous research, and now what the work you do here at the University of Toronto. It's all sort of building around that theme. Yes, yes. So take me through where you want to go with this research or what your research interest is specifically around that. Mm. So right now, the work that I'm doing is exercises treatment for people with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Okay. I'm going to ask you to define that because <laughs> I have never heard of that before. 
I feel like you've probably encountered it before. It is pretty. It is on the rarer side of of syndromes of diseases. It's, so rare, as in. Uh, you're looking at, I mean, the numbers are difficult because diagnoses are difficult, but it can be anywhere from one to 200, one in 200 people to one in 20,000 people in Canada. And it's, well, we can call it EDS for short. That's what most people will refer to it as, uh, or just in conversation. But so with EDS, it is a syndrome that is the result of an error in the synthesis of your collagen. So our body's made up of so many different components of our body are made up of collagen. You're looking at your skin or the structures that hold your organs together, your ligaments, uh, there's collagen everywhere. And when there's errors in that, then the collagen functions differently. And so with people with EDS, it can be on a whole spectrum. It can manifest in a whole spectrum of ways. You can have the most mild version where, which is the one you might have encountered, where you'll see um, hypermobility. So someone okay. might po- like show you that their elbows can bend in the opposite direction or very stretchy skin. So someone might pull the skin up off their arm very, very far. And so that's a, that's a more, um, the, on the more milder version or more mild end of the spectrum. But it can be as severe as prolapsed organs or organs falling out of place because the structure that usually holds them there is much more lax. And so they're able to move when they shouldn't move. Or you can have vessels in your body rupture as well because, again, the structure that usually keeps them uh, in the form that they should be is compromised because of this error in in collagen synthesis. So this can create many challenges to people with EDS. You can have widespread pain throughout your body, hypermobile joints, so constant dislocations. So there's... um, yeah, there's a whole range of challenges that are experienced, a whole range of symptoms and conditions that are experienced by people with EDS. And so you're looking to seeing the impact of introducing exercise and introducing different types of mobility work and stuff like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's uh, it's using exercise as a treatment uh, for for EDS. So it's not in it, it's not the only treatment. There's right. someone with EDS would often uh, the the clinic that I work in right now is I work with the EDS clinic in Toronto General Hospital. It's the only one of its kind in all of Canada, and so someone with EDS the what's available to them is so limited. And luckily, if you're in Toronto, it's here. And in this clinic, someone who will come in will exercises treatment will be one portion of their treatment, but they'll have a whole circle right. of care. So uh, di- uh, dietitian, let's say, a physiotherapist, kinesiologist, anesthesiologist for pain management, not necessarily drug-related, but just for understanding pain and physically managing your pain. So there's a whole a whole circle of care that, that can be offered to somebody with EDS, but exercise being one of those components and something that not only has been shown in otherwise healthy individuals to with similar symptoms like hypermobility, um, for instance, to improve those symptoms or those uh, conditions that are experienced by by somebody, but it also is something that someone can self-manage. And so if you're able to provide a research these tools and find out which ones work and then put those tools in the hands of somebody that's that are experiencing these challenges every single day but they now have tools that they can use at home that they don't have to rely on somebody for that they can start managing their own pain or start increasing their joint stability or just through exercise treatment that's not only empowering for the individual but it can improve their quality of life in so many ways and so you're looking at this specifically with individuals with EDS, 
So the, this research specifically is, is for EDS, but in my research interest in general is being able to use the, the knowledge gained in, in building treatment programs for people with chronic disease and being able to develop exercise as treatment or exercise programs as treatment for marginalized populations. Right. So you'd mentioned the clinic that you work in is the only one of its kind in Canada. So I'm assuming I, I can get a sense of what your answer is going to be to this, but give, give the listener an idea of what the current state of this area of research is. It's definitely an area that there's only a handful of studies that have been completed. For exercise treatment specifically for people with EDS, you're looking at about 10 studies that exist right now in the literature across the world. So it's, uh, yeah, there's not a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, cause I find that a lot, um, with my own concussion research. Like when I think of when I started researching concussions, there wasn't too much. I mean, there's probably more than 10 articles, but <laughs> they, there wasn't a lot. And it's interesting too, because if we're talking about using exercise as a way of treatment or recovery, uh, there's a lot of new research that suggests that might be a viable option as well once, you know, if we look at current return to play guidelines is after that acute phase is over that athletes shouldn't just be sitting in a dark room. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's uh, and I see this connecting back to, to athletics and, and to sports specifically, you know, looking at an athlete's experience following an injury, for example, uh, and, and understanding that this is an individual who is used to exercising mm -hmm. and is used to being active. And now all of a sudden you have an injury and the, the treatment for that says, well, actually you're just not supposed to do anything. Compound that with all the other thoughts and feelings and you know whatever else internally is going on. And it's now, here's something that you're used to doing that you're just not supposed to. And so I find it so interesting that a lot of different fields of research are turning to exercise as a way to improve the quality of life of, you know, in, in this, I'm, I'm speaking, I guess, trying to connect to, to sport and athletes in general, but also, you know, populations of individuals with, with cancer, like you had mentioned before. So given what you know of the field, given what your project is going to be looking at, how do you see this connecting back to, to that interest of yours of working with marginalized communities. You nailed it when you talked about so much research now integrating exercise or kind of moving towards, or uh, yeah, moving towards exercise because it's just like the power, the power of movement. Like we're, as human beings, we should be moving. And there's some of us that, there's people out there that have a lot more challenges to moving every day than you or I might. That doesn't necessarily mean that the best prescription is staying still because those challenges exist. So for example, people with EDS often are diagnosed really late because the, di the, the criteria for diagnosing it has changed, uh, has changed a few times and recently again in 2017. And so now, and a lot of physicians aren't even, uh, aren't even given the opportunity to learn about it because it is on the more rare side of conditions too that it won't be the first thing to be diagnosed if it's if it's actually what what the person's experiencing. So how is it diagnosed? Like what what has changed, I guess? 
there's two main components. One is a clinical test, so you're in the office with your doctor, and they'll ask you to, to they'll assess you, you physically. So they'll say to bend in a certain way, or to reach in a certain way, or um, manipulate a certain body part to see, let's say, type or mobility, for example. But there's a whole kind of checklist, and if you are on one end of that checklist, or you score a certain amount, then you're you can be considered to be hypermobile version of EDS. The, um, there's, there's 13 types of it, and 12 of them can be diagnosed molecularly through a, ge a genetic marker. So the 13th type, they haven't found a genetic marker for it yet. So not to say there isn't one, but they haven't identified it yet. So that 13th type is reliant on that clinical test. So that's how you get diagnosed. But um, that's, that way of diagnosing has changed so recently. And then so often people are diagnosed pretty late or relatively late, let's say in your 20s, where you might have been playing sports your whole life, but have been having recurrent injuries because of hypermobility. And now someone tells you, you have this diagnosis, and that can really change your identity and how you view yourself or how you view your capabilities. And some people might lean towards moving away from sport uh, as a safety precaution. And, and so by building up the research that shows the benefits of exercise or showing that exercise can actually be treatment. It allows someone who otherwise might be moving away from it to, le to lean into it and to find a way to keep it in their life. Mm -hmm. It's actually beneficial. Yeah. And so given that it's diagnosed later in life, what experiences might somebody have if they were an athlete, for example, who, who has EDS? Just speaking, like, just very generally. Yeah. A, a co I mean, a common one would be hypermobility. So in hypermobility, that can lead to constant dislocations or frequent dislocations. That would be one of the, the main uh, indicators as an athlete. The Another one could be also widespread pain, too. So pain that's increasing over years, over age, and uh, that doesn't necessarily have an identified, identified source. Right. What's next for your research then? The uh, EDS is the exercise science or exercise is treatment in EDS is still so small. So I'm going to hang out there. <laughs> um, and because there's a lot to a lot of work to be done to support people with EDS in this field. And but mostly it's going to be to develop those guidelines for physicians to be able. So your average family physician would be able to give you exercise treatment programs if you do walk in, into their room with EDS and are looking for um, and looking for improving your uh, yeah your your quality of life through that the other the other thing is now that it's being diagnosed earlier and that the criteria is becoming better known that there's gonna be more children diagnosed with EDS too mm -hmm. so working with the pediatric population that are going to be living and growing up with EDS and knowing that they have it too one question I have is, what sort of exercises are used? Mm. The, the type of exercise that would be used is de completely dependent, especially right now, because it is just an area being that we're learning about, mm -hmm. is, depends entirely on the person's capabilities. So you might have one person that, an example, is doing a wall push-up. And so even the, using only body weight, but body weight itself on a floor push-up, like um, your traditional, if you think of a push-up, the traditional sense of a push-up will be too much, um, too much body weight. 
So you'd be just even engaging in, in wall push-ups. Uh, small, small exercises like that that you'd be doing every day to increase your strength, then be able to do more challenging exercises. Um, so it really varies depending on what the person walks in with at the moment into the clinic and what they're comfortable with, where their pain levels are that day, um, what they're hoping to achieve over the next month, over the next two months. And it's really tailored right now specifically to those to those individuals. And so there's not a, a generalized treatment plan that exists right now, which is the, the goal out of working with so many so many people with varied symptoms. Right. Yeah. So we've talked quite a bit about your research on EDS and using exercise and sport as a way to improve the quality of life for, for marginalized individuals and, and individuals who are diagnosed with diseases such as EDS and how your, your personal life and your professional life and your athletic life all sort of guided you towards where you are right now. If you have any concluding thoughts. The, the one thing through, through professionally as an athlete, through research, it's movement fuels us. And like I mentioned earlier, there's people that face challenges to, to movement, to the type of movement that you or I get to do, and or to exercise or to sport. And if we can continue building avenues and programs that use exercise as treatment and allow people to have that in their lives, and not only that, but there's so often somebody finds out something about their own health, and the first thing is that they're told is to sit still. And so if we can build that whole world of research that says, these are the reasons or these are this is the evidence that shows in these cases and these scenarios moving it will actually improve what you're experiencing that's i think that's remarkable and i hope i can keep contributing to that yeah and i i totally agree it's just taking a more holistic approach to to health and and to exercise and to just personal well-being like like you said exercise is is one key part of that so we talked a little bit about you coming on the podcast as, as a regular contributor or co-host, and, and I'm super excited about that. We mentioned how your biological, physiological perspectives will complement my, my psychobehavioral uh, approaches to things. And, and so thanks so much for coming on. I am so excited because I love hearing people tell their stories much more so than telling my own. So I would love to get some remarkable humans in a room and just dive into their world, their thoughts, their brains. Thank you for tuning in to the Athletic Perspective Podcast. Check us out online via our website, athleticperspective.com. Again, that's athleticperspective, all one word, dot com, or on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Give us a like, give us a follow, subscribe, whatever you prefer. We have some great guests, some great content lined up, so stay tuned for more.